Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. 13 Isaiah 52, ready, read. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning, God. I pray this morning, Father, that we could worship and respond in light of everything that you have done, Lord. So, Father, I pray that you would remove all apathy this morning, God, that you would move all indifference, Father. And, Lord, I pray that you would just warm our hearts this morning, God, to receive what you have to say, Lord. Um, Father, let us not be more excited about Christmas Day and receiving gifts than we are about the gift that you've already given us, Father. And so, Father, I pray for right perspective this morning, God. I pray that you would shift and change all heart attitudes, God, that are not um, joyous, God. I pray, Lord, that we would know that the joy of the Lord is our strength, God. And so, Father, this morning, I pray against all distractions, God, all things that would uh, occupy our mental space, God, that would keep us from being focused on you, Lord. And so, Father, let us not come in this morning and go through the motions as obligation, Lord, but let us fully engage with our hearts, God, because you are a good God, Lord. You put breath in our lungs this morning, Father. You don't owe us anything, God, but you give us everything. And so, Father, let us respond in kind this morning, Lord. I pray, God, that ultimately, Father, that you would be exalted and you would be lifted up this morning, Father. I pray, God, that you would do a supernatural work in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives this morning, God. I pray, God, that even if you don't change whatever is ailing us or bothering us, God, I pray that you would change our hearts, God. I pray that you would give us the right mind, Lord. I pray, God, that you would teach us how to love properly, God. I pray that you would teach us how to respond properly, Lord. And so, Father, this morning, just use my voice, my thoughts, my words as an instrument, God, of your glory, God. I pray this morning that your people would not be indifferent or detached, God, but I pray that we would draw near to the God who has drawn near to us, Father. And so, Lord, I just thank you. If the world can be joyous about Christmas and they don't even believe in the Savior, God, how much more should we have joy because we understand the truth in everything that you have done, Lord? And so, Father, I pray this morning that that will be where our hearts are, that that will be where our minds are. In Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said, amen. Man, would you put your hands together for Jesus one more time? 
Amen. This morning, our sermon title is The Suffering Servant. The Suffering Servant. So this Sunday, we reached the last of the four servant songs in Isaiah about the servant who was to come to serve and die for his people. And this particular song of the servant that Isaiah prophesied about deserves all of the attention that it gets. It's one of the prophetic passages that actually intersects with divinity and humanity. It is a passage that most Christians today call upon when life touches us in our most personal place in our own bodies. And so the servant that Isaiah prophesies about is the one that is all too familiar with the idea of human, the human dilemma of rejection, pain, suffering, and sickness. But the beauty about this story is that it points to a beautiful vindication of the servant who has suffered everything on behalf of his people. And so with that being said, the hope of this season, the heart of Advent is that we celebrate the coming of the one that did not just see our needs, but the one that shared in our sufferings, the one that shared in our feelings, the one that shared in our disappointments, and he defeated everything that has defeated us. And so although we celebrate this season at the time of this prophecy, the time that this prophecy was given, the people who had just come out of exile were not so understanding about the things that Isaiah was describing about this servant. Through all of Isaiah's servant songs, they are not sure about who this servant is and how all of this will work together for them. They are hesitant to trust God because of the hardness of what they have experienced. And although what they experienced was brought on by their own disobedience. And so they're questioning God. They're not sure they want to trust him as if he did something wrong. But actually, the feelings and the insecurities that they had was all their own doing. And so they're, they're hard to trust God. And it's, they don't know what to do about it. They've been brought out of exile. God has delivered them again. But yet they can't trust the same God that keeps delivering them time and time again. And so when we read Isaiah 52, 13 through 15, it begins the story of how this will all unfold. And so God promises that this servant will succeed in what God called him to do. He will succeed in what God set him out to do. However, the caveat is that this suffering, this thing, this, this servant, it will not be easy. It will not be pretty. It will be quite the contrary. He will actually win, not through crushing his enemy, but he will win through suffering. And so the suffering will be so great that his physical appearance will mess his face up, his appearance so much that people will not want to look at him. It will be hard for people to see him. It, he will be disformed, uh, uh, um, disfigured in the way he is formed. And because of his suffering, people will not even think that he is a human being. He will be messed up with what people see from their eyes. And so no one will be impressed by him. And certainly no one will see this suffering servant as a Messiah. But the same thing that makes people turn away from him will be the same thing that God will use to vindicate him. And so God will exalt him eventually. His victory will be so uncommon that when kings and people of the nation see what happened, they will be stunned in silence. And so Isaiah 52 ends where the servant will eventually end. He will be exalting and he will be victorious, but he got to go through some stuff before he gets there. There's got to be pain before the victory comes. And so this particular song that this prophet is speaking to Israel in the future. Here's what Isaiah is doing. He's speaking to Israel about the reaction they will have 
after the events of the suffering of the servant. He's talking to them about how they will respond after everything he has predicted will happen. He's describing to them their aha moment. Somebody says something to you. Your grandmother says something to you. Your mom tells you something when you're young. You get into your adult life. It makes no sense when you're a teenager. You get to be 25, 30 years old. You're like, oh, that's what she was talking about. And he's describing to them the aha moment that they will get when they realize what the suffering servant was supposed to do all the while he talks to them about an event that will happen seven centuries later. And so Isaiah is prophesying about something that will happen seven centuries, 700 years before they happen. Isaiah will be long gone and dead by the time these events happen, but Isaiah, through God, is able to see and project into the future. Isaiah positioned himself at a point in time in the future after the the servant has suffered, but before his complete and full vindication. And so it puts the narrative in this place where this suffering servant has come, he's done what he's supposed to do, but he has one final act to come, and that's what you and I are waiting on. They were waiting on the first act, but you and I are waiting on his second act. And so this is where they are. And Isaiah, the prophet, is now speaking on behalf of Israel and what their response will be and how they will respond in their aha moment. And so the first two verses or the first verse actually asks two rhetorical questions. And here's what it says. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so this is them having finally understood, having finally seen what happens, and now it all makes sense, and so they've turned and they've repented, and so their response to everybody is, the the reason they're asking this rhetorical question is because they are shocked that someone that suffered so much could be vindicated by God. You see, you got to understand, in ancient antiquity, if somebody suffered, they were suffering because they did something wrong. It's just like us today. We see something going wrong in somebody's life. We see something uh, go out of whack, and we be like, what do they do to get there? The first thing we do is look to blame something somewhere. And so they had the same thought process that if something is going wrong in this person's life, it must, be, it must mean that they've done something wrong and God is getting them back or God is punishing them. And so what he's using is he's like, no, not everything that happens to somebody is because of something that they've done. Not every misfortune is because somebody did something to deserve it. Not everything that we find ourselves falling into that is hard for us or some suffering or some sickness or some pain that we experience, none of that or sometimes none of that has anything to do with anything you've done wrong. It's just what God is using to grow you and get you closer to him. And so the Messiah is suffering, but they're like, we had a hard time seeing this because we didn't expect the person to save us would actually suffer to save us. It is something that cannot be understood with the natural mind. Now, here's what happens for you and I. We have the privilege of living after the events have already happened. And so it is easy for us to see what he's actually talking about. We live on the other side of the events of the suffering servant. But even with that, think about how many times, how many times you and I had to hear the gospel before we actually gave our hearts to Jesus. How long did you grow up in church before you decided to take God serious? The message didn't change. Your Bible didn't change. They didn't do an updated updated translation so you could finally get it. No, you heard the same message your whole life, but no matter how many times you heard it, you were not able to respond to it. Your flesh kept getting in the way, but then one moment, one day, it all made sense to you. Your eyes were open, and you were like, why didn't I do this the whole time? And so this is where they are. And so the only reason you and I responded wasn't because of some good preaching. 
The only reason you and I responded wasn't because somebody that was persistent in their evangelism. The reason that you and I responded to God is because of God. God, through the Holy Spirit, decided to open our minds so that we can receive and know and see who God was for who he is. The only reason you and I are saved is not because of somebody's eloquent preaching, not because you grew up in church, but it is sheer, the sheer mercy and grace of God that you and I are saved and God gets all the credit and God gets all the glory. He just uses people. And so even after Jesus had been resurrected, there was a time where the disciples were meeting in the house and Jesus resurrected shows up on the scene and he's telling them in Luke 24, he's like, this was what I was talking to y'all about all the time. I told you before that the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms were all about me. They had to be fulfilled in me. And then it says something interesting in Luke 24, verse 45. It says that then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And maybe some of us don't understand God in his fullness. It's because we have not prayed and asked God to help us to understand more of him. And so we approach Bible reading in the flesh. We're superimposing ourselves in the text. We David. We the hero of every story. We the comeback kid of every story. As opposed to saying, God, open my mind, open my eyes to see exactly what you want me to see. God, why is it that I read this one thing and it has no effect on my heart? Why is it that I read this one portion of scripture and I'm eager to overlook this and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and pass on by that one. And so we treat the Bible like it's a buffet. But we got to pray, God, open my mind and open my heart to receive everything that you say in your word and help me to trust you so that I can glorify you with my entire life. Amen? Amen. And so it is hard to accept sometimes. And everyone has expectations of how things should go. And this is what happened, is happening with Israel. They wanted to be delivered. They wanted a Messiah. But they have a preconceived notion of how the Messiah was supposed to come. And everyone, all of us, we play out things in our heads about how our lives and the story should unfold. Typically for us, the ending is something heroic, and God comes in and saves us right the way we wanted, and in the nick of time, he comes just like we wanted. We, we imagine how God is going to free us from this job, right? We're like, I'm going to apply, and in like two weeks, I'm going to get a call back, and it's going to be the job that I wanted the entire time. We play this whole thing out in our minds. We pray that things are going to change just the way that we prayed it and just the way we imagined it. But how many of us know that God almost never responds in a way that you think he's supposed to respond? Almost never. God always does something different. Oftentimes, God uses the foolish things to shame the wise. And so Israel expected this beautiful Messiah to come in in splendor and majesty. They did not expect a baby that is born in an animal's feeding trough. The last thing they wanted their Messiah was somebody to come normal and common just like them. But the Messiah came as a common and normal man who went through some stuff. And so God cannot be who we made him up to be in our minds. And so we live in a culture where people's understanding of God is not who God said he was, but it's God who they made up in their minds. And so when God doesn't do what we expect, we superimpose our negative feelings on him like he let us down. And so we treat God like we treat people. And so we have these misplaced expectations, what I like to call misplaced messianic expectations. We form a thought about God, and it's not shaped and formed by what God said he would do. 
And so Israel has the same thing happening in their minds. They want the Messiah to come in a particular way, but God is not doing things in a normal way. I have a question for you because there's a second question that they asked. They said, so who the arm of the Lord been revealed? God got an arm? No, God don't have an arm. That's just some language that they use to communicate God's power to us. It says, 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 who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What they're saying is, would God's real power really be demonstrated if he came to the rescue just like we wanted him to? Could, could you really appreciate God's power if he came just like you and I asked him to do? We would make up some fairy tale, cute story where God doesn't get down in our mess, where everything is nice and everything is clean and nothing is ever messy and God rides in and Jesus is like the one we see on the portrait and his hair is flowing and his hair is nice and he comes in in a, in a nice white robe but Jesus don't come like that Jesus comes and gets down in the mess and he deals with our mess nothing is pretty nothing is easy because sin is always messy but I thank God that I serve a God that is not afraid to get in my mess and deal with my mess and get dirty with me no matter how low I've gotten he is always touched with the feelings of my infirmity and I thank God that he doesn't come like some cute Barbie doll or some cute thing that I made up in my head. He's a real God that deals with real human issues. And so he says, who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has experienced God's power? Israel was initially caught off guard because they would not have seen any of the suffering in the ministry of the servant. And this is the part that they missed. He had said in Isaiah 49 that the suffering, that the suffering servant would labor. He would feel like all of this was for naught. He would seem like he was unsuccessful, like nobody was listening. And so Israel just cannot come to grips in their mind that this dude is not coming in splendor. They wanted a military person to come in and crush all their enemies. They wanted the kings of the foreign countries to be impeached. They was like, get him out of office. And God was like, the, pol the political issues are least your worries. You got something deeper that needs to be dealt with. Something a little bit more messy than politics. You have a sin issue. And so even if I crush them, but I don't deal with your stuff, you end up in the same predicament. And all the while, through his suffering, God is showing off his power. But they were too blinded by their own expectations to see it. Let me say this. God's power was being revealed through the mess, through the pain, through the disappointment, through the heartbreak. God was revealing his power through the suffering of the servant. Weakness and death was the most powerful thing to ever happen in human history. Let me tell you this. We're oftentimes looking for God to do something miraculous, but God oftentimes is demonstrating his power in the stuff that seems to be killing you. Whatever is hurting you, God's power is in that. God's power ain't in coming down and bringing you out in the nick of time. God's power is actually with you when you're going through the mess, when you're going through the heartache, when you're going through the pain, when the pain doesn't want to seem to leave, or you can't get yourself out of the situation. You can't get yourself out of the depression. You can't get yourself out of the lack. God's power is showing off right there. Why is that? How do you know that, Pastor? Because he's sustaining you. He's sustaining you. God's power is oftentimes revealed in the mess, not when he gets you out of it. 
But if you're waiting to say, ah, that was God when you come out, you miss the goodness of God. Paul said it like this. Paul had this issue, this physical issue in his body. And Paul, the apostle, is praying, Lord, take this thing from just get rid of this pain. Get rid of it. And it doesn't tell us what it is. So we don't know what kind of issue Paul has. We just know Paul has an issue. And the apostle Paul is praying that God would remove it. And God would not take this away. If anybody prays and should get God to respond, it has to be the apostle Paul. He's got all the books in the New Testament. He's he's writing everything. If anybody, God was going to respond to their prayer. It had to be Paul. But Paul found out something that God said to him, and he reveals it to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Here's what he said. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. His power is made perfect in our weakness. Maybe you're looking for God to come rescue you, and God is like, no, my power is with you right now while you're going through it. So his power is working through us. So to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has his power been revealed to? It's been revealed to you and I because we're still here. Think about everything that you've experienced in your life that seemed like it was too painful for you to deal with, and you still made it. The power wasn't when you got out of it. The power was when you were still in it. The the power is when you still make your way to church in spite of how you feel. The power is when you get up in the morning, hate your job, drive in I-4 traffic, get on the 408, still get there and do your job like you're supposed to do, although you don't want to be there. That's God's power. God's power ain't when you get a new job. That's the easy part. But God's power is right there with you when you have a sickness or something going on in your body and the doctors don't have an answer to it and you're still maintaining and going on about your life and glorifying God through your life in the midst of the pain. That's God's power right there. And so this is where they are. And so verse 2 tells us something almost like a biography of this servant. Verse 2 describes his life. It says, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that that we should desire him. Not only could they not perceive his power, they, they were put off by the Messiah's appearance. He didn't come from a place that many people would expect the Messiah to come from. When they say a plant, he grew up like a plant. They're talking about a plant that will come out of a dry place that has no precipitation. A plant that will come up through the cracks and eventually be, be withered away by the sun. He, he stood no chance. There was no chance with this guy by the way he looked. This could not be the Messiah. He would not be successful if we're just looking at appearances. He looked regular. He was a regular looking person. He didn't have no filter on his Instagram pictures. He didn't have this faulty expectation that when you see him on Instagram and you see him in real life, he looked completely different than he looked on his Instagram pictures. He didn't have no filter to his life. He was who he was. And so people were put off by it. People were put off by it. He didn't have an aura. When he walked into a room, nobody said, um, man, that's the Messiah. When he was in school, nobody voted him to be most popular. He wasn't most likely to succeed. He, he, he wasn't the best. There was nothing desirable about this Messiah. He lived a life of rejection. It says he was despised and rejected by men. He was one who suffered and he knew sickness. He was like 
someone people turned away from. He, he was despised. People didn't value him. They treated him like some terminally ill person. They treated him like some person that had some terminal disease that nobody wanted to be around. If there was an elementary school and he was the kid at the table that nobody wanted to eat lunch with, that, that if you sit next to him, you're automatically no longer cool. This is who this Messiah is. He's despised. He's grossly underestimated. Nobody wants to be around him. He, he knew what sickness was. Nobody took him serious. When I think of somebody being undervalued, I think about, I'm a sports fanatic, I think about something that happened in February of 1990. One of the biggest upsets in sports history, um, there was a 20 four-year-old undefeated heavyweight champion by the name of Mike Tyson. He, he's 37-0 in 1990, and he comes into a match with this bum, this, this bum of a boxer who's already lost four matches. He's past his prime because he's in his late 20s, going on 30. Mike Tyson, his last fight before this fight lasted all of 93 seconds. I don't know if you know anything about boxing, but, but if you know anything about boxing, uh, in the 90s, in the 80s, Mike Tyson was feared. Mike Tyson was like the boogeyman. Like, like if you're fighting Mike Tyson, you better make sure you got an insurance policy. Mike is about to wreck your whole life. My, nobody stands a chance against Mike in his prime. If you, if you there's, a, there's a, a game system out before y'all born called Nintendo. It's called Nintendo. It's called Nintendo. And, and Nintendo had a very popular game called uh, Mike Tyson Punch-Out. And so you fight, you this little dude, you fight all these boxers before you get to the final match with, with Mike. And I don't know a soul. I, I still, all, all my teenage years of growing up, or preteen years of playing this Nintendo, I never met anybody that could beat Iron Mike. Nobody won this game. There wasn't no cheat code. You fought Mike and you lost. This, but this was just like real life. This was just like real life, except this night in Tokyo, this guy by the name of James Buster Douglas, who nobody expected to win, somehow got Iron Mike into the 10th round. And in the 10th round, somehow, some way, the arm of the Lord must have been with James Buster Douglas. Because he punched Mike. And Mike, who had never lost a fight in his life, who literally destroyed everybody that stood in his way, found himself on the canvas looking for his mouthpiece. And by the time he got his mouthpiece and put it back in his mouth, the referee had already counted to 10. And this fight shocked the world. But the interesting thing is nobody gave Buster Douglas a chance because a couple of things were happening in Buster's life. Buster was suffering. 23 days prior to this fight, Buster Douglas' mom passed. A couple days before the fight, Buster Douglas' baby's mother was put into the hospital for kidney, for kidney disease. Two days before the fight, Buster Douglas himself came down with the flu. Everything is working against Buster Douglas in, in, in addition to having to fight somebody that's never lost a fight before. And so nobody gave Buster Douglas a chance. When they asked the commentators before the fight how long they thought they would be there, they said, I think this fight might last 90 seconds. Nobody gave Buster a chance. And with all of those odds and all of the suffering and all the sickness going on and around him, he stood no chance but with one punch. He took out the one person that nobody else could take out. And this is what the suffering servant does. He's like Buster Douglas. He has suffering going on all around him. And the enemy that nobody can defeat, which is sin and death, 
he somehow knocks him out. On the third day, he gets up off the canvas because Buster did get knocked out at one point, but he got back up on his feet. And on the third day, Buster got up, I'm sorry, the Messiah got up off of his feet and threw one final blow and gave death his own medicine. He defeated death and death can defeat us no longer. And so although the odds looked at bleak at one point, just like it looks for the servant, even if the odds look bleak in your own life, all you need to know is with one punch, God can take out everything that's been taking you out, every struggle that you've ever had in your life, everything that you are dealing with, every addiction that you can't seem to overcome, every family issue that has seemed to persist in your life since you was born, every weakness that you have, all it takes is for one blow, and the blow has already happened, and you have victory in Christ Jesus already. And so it said they, 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 didn't, they, they didn't value him. They didn't value him. They didn't see the worth in him. People saw this Messiah's miracles and still didn't believe his own family misjudged him. The woman at the well had no idea who she was talking to. Even John the Baptist who came before him was uncertain at one point. But this servant, I'm here to tell you, was no one other than Jesus. Let me read you something. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 35. This is further proof that the Messiah or the servant is Jesus. As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, go down, go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia. Now, where's Ethiopia? Where's Ethiopia? Huh? Oh, you mean, wait, so Ethiopia is in Africa. Okay. A eunuch of great authority under the Kandake, the queen of Ethiopia. Where's Ethiopia? The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Holy Spirit says to Philip, go over and walk along beside the carriage Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. The passage of scripture he had been reading was this. He's reading verses 7 and 8 that we didn't read today, but of the same, of the same passage. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb uh, is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth? And the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet Isaiah talking about himself or someone else? So beginning with this same scripture, Philip told him what? The good news about Jesus. So what happens? This ain't a part of my message, but I think you need this in your arsenal. This Ethiopian eunuch. Where is, where is Ethiopia again? Oh, sorry. Right. So he receives this good news about the gospel. He works for the queen of Ethiopia. He goes home after receiving this message. So how in the world can somebody tell me that there was no gospel in Africa? We have proof right here. He would have understood what some of us don't, that when you receive the good news, you don't just keep it, you go and share it. So he takes the same message back to where he came from. But the point of the message is this, not an apologetic. I just gave you that for free because I love you on Christmas. The point of the message is this, is that everything in the Old Testament was talking about Jesus. 
Everything was leading up to Jesus. And so here is the thing. They didn't understand anything about Jesus. They were having a hard time receiving anything about Jesus because of his rejection, because of his scorning, because of his, his suffering. And so they were like, I, 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 we don't understand. And so we, we, we're just kind of insecure about Jesus. But then they have a moment where they come to their senses and they realize everything that's bad about him wasn't really bad about him. Everything that we saw bad about him was only because he was taking on our badness. So we projected on him what was really wrong with us. And so they were just like us, good at blame shifting. It's never our fault. It's always the other person's fault. But if we could just explain our story just so they can hear it rightly, they will see that we're right and they're wrong. And so he, they come to this realization. Here's what it says in verses 4 through 5, and I want you to see this. Here's the realization that Israel came to. Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed, not by our own, but by his wounds. And although we despised him, there was never really anything wrong with him. The reason he looked deformed, the reason he suffered, was because he decided to stand in our place. He was taking on the iniquities of the people. He knew that our sin put us at odds with God. And so God, in his sovereignty, knew that the only way to have a relationship with us was to deal with our sin problem. The only thing is, if we deal with our own sin problem, there's no life left for us. So the only way to deal with the sin problem is to get somebody who is human but not sinful but also divine at the same time. It has to be somebody that sits on both ends, that is, that is, that is, a, that is familiar with both, that, that can mediate both parties. And so what does God do because he loves us so much? He wants to have a relationship with us. So he sends his son not to just die for us but to stand in our place. And so the wrath of God, all of the punishment for our sins is put on his son on the cross. So every single sin of every single person that's ever been born was put on the Messiah at the same time. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about all of your mess that you're going through and all the stuff that you struggle with and all the sins that you committed. And I want you to think about everybody that's ever been born. And Jesus takes on each and every sin one at a time. And the only response God has is to pour out his wrath. But we love Jesus because somebody stood in our place. He was willing to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. How is it possible for a guilty person to be made righteous? How can God treat bad people like you and I as though we're good? The only way he can do that is if there was a substitute that stood in our place that took on all our sin, all of our guilt, and all of our shame. And so he stands in our place and bears the weight of our sin. Why would he do that? He had to become like us for us to become like him. And so this morning we sang this scripture. We sang 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And so the video at the outset, outset talked about us having love. But the very essence of love is God being a substitute for us and standing in our place. 
You don't truly love somebody unless you're willing to bear their junk. Love ain't a feeling. Love is an action. God didn't just have funny feelings with us. God saw our plight and he did something about it. He was moved to actions. This is what makes God good. This is what makes the gospel not just gracious, but it's scandalous. This, ain't, this is a scandal. That bad people could become good. That evil people could be made right with God. Evil people who do not deserve it and would at times un, would not appreciate the person who died for them. That is scandalous that God would still love us. It is scandalous that God would still love people who would still be disobedient for us. And so that is what we're celebrating this Christmas. We ain't celebrating the gift that people give us. We're celebrating the gift of life that God already gave to us. That, that is the joy, and that is the beauty of Christmas. The joy ain't about the Christmas tree. The, the joy is actually about the cross. Like, that's what I'm going to do next year. Tell my wife, take down this Christmas tree. We're putting up a cross. We're putting up a cross. And so, last thing I want to say is this. It says this, that his punishment was for our peace, and by his stripes we are healed. By his stripes, we are healed. And oftentimes, when we hear that in church, or we hear it amongst Christians, oftentimes, we put it in the context of physical healing. We put it in the context of miracles. And so, I don't know if you know recently, there is this thing going on in Christendom. (laughs) There's this two-year-old baby that passed away unexpectedly. And her her parents... After she was pronounced dead at the hospital, her, her parents decided to get people and ask people that they would pray that God would resurrect their baby. Not while she's just at the hospital, not while the baby's on life support, but they prayed for people to believe that God would resurrect this baby. So I wasn't understanding in the beginning, like, the details of it. So I was like, oh, maybe she's in a coma, and they're just saying she was pronounced dead but still on life support. No, the baby was actually dead and in the morgue. And so instead of praying, instead of planning for a funeral, her parents are praying for her to be resurrected in the morgue. So everybody's on social media praying. And the question becomes, should we still be praying for miracles like this? Should we use Isaiah 53 as a passage to ask God to heal somebody miraculously? Pastor, should I pray for miracles? Sure, yeah. I, I don't. If something happened to me right now, if I fall over, now I wake up, I'm gonna be mad if y'all didn't pray. <laughs> I'm gonna be really upset. If I get to heaven and I realize, Pastor, they didn't even pray for you. They was making plans while you was dead. They was like, man, we gotta find us another pastor. I'm gonna be really upset from heaven. I'm going to come back and mess with somebody. (laughs) That's just what I'm going to do because I'm petty like that. But yeah, you should pray for miracles. You should pray for someone to be healed. But the truth of the matter is, when he says, by his stripes we are healed, we sell God short when we, we we narrow this down to physical healing. Because more than God wants your body to be healed, God wants us to be healed from sin. 
So the stripes that he bore on the cross wasn't just for our physical healing. It was for the healing of our salvation. It was for the healing of our soul because our biggest problem wasn't our bodies being ailed. Our biggest problem was a sin problem. How many of you know that when we think about Jesus and all he did in the earth and all the miracles he performed, everybody that he resurrected from the grave, every sick person, that body he made heal, all those people eventually died again. All those people died again. Even the people that he raised to life, they died eventually again. And so the, the, the thing about Jesus' miracles in the Bible, it wasn't to say, oh, that's cool and entertaining and we should do it. He was doing miracles to prove that he was actually the Messiah. And so the miracles were done to bring glory to him, not to the people that were praying for the miracle. And so when we pray for healing, yes, pray for healing, but pray, God, thank you for healing me of my greatest disease, which is sin. And so what should our response be to a Savior that has healed us? that has healed our wounds, that has healed us from the war of sin, that has accomplished our victory in his resurrection, that in the final days our healing would be complete. What is our response to a God like that? Our response is to worship, that we would obey God in everything we do. The second thing that we do is that we should remember what God has done, that we should never forget what God did for us. And thirdly and finally, We should consider the weight of our sin and thank God that he sent his son. But not only thank him with our lips, we should thank him by honoring him with our lives. So this Christmas season, we enjoy our family. Some of us will get some stuff. Some of us will be a blessing to other people that will fill our hearts. But ultimately, I think we should be thankful this season for what God has done for us. That he died for people like you and I that did not deserve to be here. That through his son, who stood in our place, took on all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame on the cross. He died for us. That is the most amazing story that's ever been told. So we should think about that. That should permeate our minds that Jesus died for my sins. That no matter how I feel about myself, no matter how detached I feel from God, that my feelings don't stand in the way of what's already been done for me. That if no one else loves me, that if no one else appreciates me, that if no one gives me anything this season, that God has given me the greatest gift by giving me his son. And so... Let us remember the suffering servant, the Messiah that came to die for our sins. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.